There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Greetings, fellow time travellers. As always, it's terrific to have you with me for the journey through space and time. Before we start on today's episode, I want to say a big thanks to all of the people who show their support for this podcast that Paul and I do together by signing up to the patreon.com presence. It's the financial support from the Patreon presence that makes everything else that Paul and I do possible. So if you're already a member, thank you very much. If you're not a member and you'd like to join, just go to patreon.com Search for me by name, Neil Oliver, part with a bit of cash, sign up and you become a member of the community or you might say a member of the family. We do weekly question and answer sessions, vodcasts, there's the podcasts, there's competitions. It also brings people together with one another, people of like mind, people, curious types, people with questions and a fascination for history and archaeology and current affairs. Okay, that's enough of the advert. Uh, It's now time to strap yourselves into the time machine as we set off on the next Stop on my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. One of the world's most unlikely revolutionaries strides onto the world's stage. Hammer in hand, he nails a document called the 95 Theses to the door of the castle church. With the aid of the printing press, the new tech of the day, copies of his document go viral and he becomes a major medieval influencer. Emboldened, he circulates pamphlets with even more challenging ideas, and the insults start to fly. Pope Leo X calls him a drunken German, and Martin Luther replies that the Pope is no better than any other stinking sinner. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future, I'm Neil Oliver, and this is my love letter to the world. Hi Neil. In last week's episode it was 1493 as we sailed across the Atlantic Ocean with Christopher Columbus and what was to become an icon of the Americas, the horse. Where are we this week? Hello again Paul. Well this week we're in a new century. It's now 1517 and we're travelling to Germany as a revolutionary document is being nailed to the door of a church. It's a small act in itself, but one that sends cataclysmic shockwaves across Europe and down through time. We're in eastern Germany, in the beautiful town of Wittenberg, as Martin Luther nails his demands to the door of All Saints Church and kickstarts the Protestant Reformation. This week we're in Germany. We're in the universe that was altered by Johannes Gutenberg and his development of movable type and the rest of the technology that we've long taken for granted in the form of printing. He was really the the godfather of an information revolution. Learning to print so that you could mass produce copies of the same document 
books, Bibles, pamphlets, whatever. It changed everything forever. We talk now routinely about information and ideas going viral. Well, at the turn of the 16th century, the Gutenberg effect really kicked in. That was a foretaste of the ability for information to go viral. And it demonstrated, more than really than anything else, the, the power latent within an idea, if it could quickly reach many people. You know, in, in different ways, in different contexts, we've talked about how you, know, you get a spark of genius somewhere in the mind of an individual. But in order for that to have the effect that you want, that spark has to land in tinder and be kindled into fire that spreads for that idea to mean anything. And so what we see in the information revolution that was made possible by the printing press is the power latent in ideas. Which brings us to, this is not about Gutenberg per se, this is about an Augustinian monk called Martin Luther, who on the 31st of October, 1517, took a walk to the castle church in Wittenberg, where he lived, a town on the River Elbe in Saxony, in northeast Germany. And in his hand, he held a document that he had written, composed and written himself in Latin. It's gone down in history as the 95 Theses. It was basically his list of 95 ways in which the church, which is really to say the Catholic church, had fallen from the path of righteousness, had gone astray. He had always been a non-controversial, devout man of the church. He loved the church, of which he was a product, of which he was an active participant. So he wasn't somebody who had spent his life you know, sticking twigs into wasps' nests just to get an effect. He wasn't like that at all. But he had been profoundly offended, I suppose, upset at the very least by what was happening to the church as he saw it. It was brought to a head for him. This is, remember, that the, he, he, he's up at the church, Castle Church in Wittenberg in 1517. Well, back in 1515, Pope Leo X had encouraged the sale of what were called indulgences to pay for the building of the new St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Now, indulgences basically were a guarantee that when you died, your soul would spend less time in purgatory. An indulgence was a kind of get-out-of-jail-free card. So the more indulgences you could afford to buy, the less time your immortal soul would spend in purgatory before getting into heaven. And Martin Luther was just appalled by the barefacedness of that. And number one of the 95 Theses read, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent! He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Luther believed that repentance, which is the, the necessary step towards forgiveness, comes from within. That it was the obligation and responsibility of every man and woman to earn forgiveness by making of themselves better people. They had to take responsibility for their behaviour, alter their behaviour, alter their thinking, be better. It wasn't just about sinning and buying an indulgence and ducking the consequences of behaviour. 
And it was also particularly brought to a head for him by his own parishioners in Wittenberg, telling him that around the town and in, in the in the countryside, at least one Dominican friar, at least one by the name of Johann Tetzel, was strolling around selling indulgences to anyone and everyone. And you could get off theft, adultery, you name it. If you parted with the with the necessary funds, he was telling you, don't worry about that. You, you, you know, that's, that's your time in purgatory d- diminished. So it was a profound moment for Martin Luther. And because it was a moment for him, it became a moment for everybody else. And the other 94 theses just kept hammering home the idea that forgiveness, the way to righteousness, was earned and not bought. It sounds pretty straightforward. In today's world, there are lots of different Christian denominations, but at this time, was it only the Catholics? Yes, up until this point, there was just Christianity. There was just the church. People wouldn't have talked necessarily about the Catholic church. I mean, Catholic with a small c really just means for everyone. And there was there was no alternative to it. Well, there were always, well, what went, what go down as heresies. I mean, from the beginning, you know, right from the right from the, the time of Jesus Christ onwards, there were there were always people with different ideas about how to interpret the word of God and and the message of the gospel and, and what Jesus had said. So there were always conflicting ideas, but there was only one established church and that established church would play whack-a-mole with any troublesome ideas that came along and it was the case really that I mean Martin Luther at at first glance didn't trouble the church at all he wasn't pushing a heresy to begin with as far as they were concerned as well as hammering a copy of the theses into the church door for everyone to see anyone going to church would see it you know just like on a notice board he also gave a copy of his document to the Archbishop of Mainz, the same Mainz from which Johannes Gutenberg came, and the Archbishop sent it to the Pope. <laughs> and at, at first, the casual reaction from, from the Archbishop of, of Mainz was, was simply that he wanted Martin Luther to shut up about indulgences. That was it. Just don't stop going on about that. That's just church business. Leave it alone. That was all the Archbishop wanted. Just stop talking about indulgences. It was, it was going to be no big deal. But matters escalated out, up and out of control because the theses were translated first from Latin into German. Martin had written them in Latin. Someone bothered to translate them into the German language. And then they were printed. The 95 theses were printed on Gutenberg printing presses. And boom, now the cat's out the bag. Literally, this this information is being circulated, it's being mass-produced, and it's going out into the hands of anyone and everyone. And so something that might have been tamped down and, you know, limited only to Wittenberg or, or, or whatever was suddenly out there. And to make matters worse, Luther kept on going. It's fair to say that he probably enjoyed the attention. I mean, he's only human. And he was a good writer. He had a good turn of phrase and he may well have been flattered by the fact that it's like getting likes on Twitter. You know, he may well have been flattered by the fact that so many people were responding to what he'd had to say. And so he wrote more. He kept on going. He didn't leave it at the, at the 95 Theses. He started turning out pamphlets in which he 
developed his ideas and he got he got bolder and bolder as time went on and he was developing this overarching thesis that he had that it, it wasn't enough just to go to church on a Sunday or whatever and go through the motions you know sit through mass obey the various rituals of communion confession absolution it wasn't about that and that was flying in the face of the church because the, the church had given people to understand that that was really what they needed to do to stay on the path of righteousness and to end up in heaven. It was about a preoccupation with what the church called works, which is going to church, performing the rituals, going to confession, receiving absolution, taking communion, that as long as you did that, you'd end up in heaven. But Luther said no, that faith was the key. He was saying that a man or a woman was or should be in a direct relationship with God. That there was a, an, an uninterrupted, unbroken line of connection between the individual and the Almighty. And he said that the necessary salvation was achieved through grace and that grace was a gift from God alone. You certainly couldn't put your hand in your pocket for a few coins and buy it from a passing monk. Grace was a gift from God alone. And so it followed that in order to receive salvation, that every man and woman had to make the change within their own heart. They had to repent. They had to understand what was right and what was wrong. And they had to act accordingly. And if they were lucky, if they did that, they would receive God's grace. And it was God's grace that was going to make all the difference for them. It was a revolutionary thesis, especially once he got his dander up and really started to develop it. The Pope, you know, I said that uh, a copy of his 95 Theses was sent to Pope Leo X. Well, Pope Leo was, was dismissive of Luther to begin with as well. He said that he was nothing more than a, a drunken German and that he would think differently about it all once he'd sobered up. <laughs> And word of this got to Martin Luther and he said the Pope was nothing more and nothing less than another stinking sinner. Wow. Okay, so that's how to annoy your boss. And his ideas, because of his skill with words and because of the, the printing press that was producing mass copies, his ideas went far and wide. So they, and they didn't just circulate in Germany. They, they started moving back and forth, changing hands in the rest of Europe. And he let it be known that he did not like the idea of confession bringing absolution. He didn't like that as a, as a concept. He also was down on and condemned the celibacy of the priests. He didn't like that either. And so the church really was left with no alternative but to try and cancel him. So rather than just ignoring him as a, as a drunken German who would sober up, he was excommunicated. In 1520. So he was actually expelled from the brotherhood of the church. And Luther's response to that was to go into the, a public square somewhere with a copy of the bill and set it on fire. He just threw it away. He was summoned before an imperial diet, which is basically a kind of a church court. And he refused to back down there. And he, so he was driven into hiding. He disappeared off the face of the earth for a while. It's possible that he was kidnapped by people that were determined to protect him, possibly even protect him from himself. Uh, but in any event, he kept a low profile for a while. He always said that 
his teaching, it came only from his reading of the Bible. And so as part of his continuing campaign, he translated himself the New Testament from Latin into German. And that was printed too. I mean, people who could read, maybe they could read Latin, but it was more likely that people would read their own language that they spoke every day. So he produced a, a copy of the New Testament in German, and that was mass-produced as well. Again, it's, it's worth reiterating that Martin Luther had had a lifetime of supporting the church. He was not a gadfly. He, was not, he, he had not had a history of making trouble. And it makes it all the more remarkable then that he was the midwife of the rebellion that gave birth to nothing less than Protestantism. This was the first alternative, the first realistic threat to the Catholic Church was the Protestant faith, those protesting about everything that was wrong with the Church. It was huge and it was so unlikely that it would have come from the man from whom it came because Martin Luther had no background in this kind of troublemaking, you would say. So throughout the 1530s, what they called Lutheranism, the teaching of Luther, and Protestantism just spread. Just spread like fire all across Europe. There were all sorts of strands of it, and some of which uh, Martin Luther didn't care for. One notable strand of Protestantism was called Anabaptism. And the Anabaptists, amongst other things, believed that it was meaningless to baptise a baby because the, the baby was having it done to them, whether they wanted it or not. And so the Anabaptists said that only an adult, only a rational thinking, grown man or woman could make that decision to receive baptism. So they're, they're controversial, to put it mildly. Actually, the city of Munster in 1534 was, was taken over by Anabaptists and subsequent commentators looking back at the, the society that evolved under the Anabaptists in the city of Munster said that it was a kind of a proto-communism, at the very least. They practised polygamy, okay, so multiple partners and more. I mean, there were all sorts of dark rumours around the Anabaptists about all sorts of immoral or amoral practices. Suffice it to say, Anabaptism was violently put down. It offended the church and, and the Protestant church, or the main body of the Protestant church, likewise. A wave of reformation was, was washing back and forth across Europe. A notable development was in Switzerland, where a French-born John Calvin uh, was living. He was born in France, but he was living in Switzerland, and he came up with the version of Protestantism that, that has his name, Calvinism. Uh, Calvinism actually reached its most complete flowering in Scotland under the likes of John Knox. That particularly fundamentalist strain of Protestantism really did have its, have its brightest flowering in Scotland, but it, Calvinism also went all, across, all the way across to North America. You know, the Pilgrim Fathers and all the rest of it. Calvinism went out and took root and is still there in North America to this day. So, this is a moment. In terms of a love letter to the world and a, a, a moment that's changing history, they don't really come any bigger in the West, certainly, than the, the Lutheran trigger for the Reformation. So, in short, when he walked up to the door of the castle church at Wittenberg and hammered the thesis in, the, you might imagine cracks spreading from the, from the hammering in of the nail, and those cracks spread across the edifice of the church 
and changed everything for everyone forever. Do you think this questioning of power and religion is an important historical engine? It does make people question everything, and people should question everything. I, I always think, in terms of religion, that it's the work of human beings. There are those human beings down through the ages, a handful of them really, who claim to have heard the word of God and to be relaying the word of God. Now, maybe they are and maybe they aren't. It's very difficult to tell in absolutist terms if someone genuinely has heard the word of God and that that's what they're repeating. Or are they playing fast and loose with the truth? And because of that unavoidable presence of doubt, it is the obligation of everyone, believers and non-believers, to ask questions. And I don't think there's any getting away from the fact that Martin Luther was right when he pointed out that the very idea that you could buy forgiveness just with money, that you could buy time off from purgatory just because you were wealthy, that's got to be wrong. (laughs) And Martin Luther was right to point that out and to say that if the pursuit of righteousness and salvation is to have any meaning, it has to come from within and it has to be not what you say, but, but the way you live your life. And surely it's not just enough to go through the motions of going to church and being seen at church and being heard to say certain things. What matters is what's genuinely in your heart. And in essence, that's all Martin Luther started out by saying. You know, that salvation comes from within. And surely if there's such a thing as salvation, it can only come from within. At the turn of the 16th century, religious unrest is bubbling up across Europe. Islam's power and reach is growing. To cement their control and influence, the Christian West crowns Charles V, the new Holy Roman Emperor. For the first time in the history of the world, one man holds sway over an empire where the sun never sets. Next time in my love letter to the world. To support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. I'd love to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel, simply called The Neil Oliver Channel. To help build this podcast, please tell your friends about it, get them listening, and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments, and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc., Music is composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucy and Archie and Teddy. The finance is the care of Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? 
we wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.